Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 74, and I'm your host, Nick Ortego. A new university study says relationships impact schools more than money. And are you violating the law if you show Netflix in your classroom? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, distance reading. We'll tell you how you can teach your students to read massive amounts of text using computer code. The results will blow your mind. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortego here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt. Lissa, how are you doing? I am great. I was reading about a new dating app online that I got to share with you. <laughs> um, how does your wife feel about yeah, that? <laughs> no. it's, uh, it's actually a dating app for teachers to find a best fit for a school. And that's what the developer of this app is like describing it as, is a dating app. Where basically, you put in your application once and you fill out the criteria of the type of teacher you are and then a school's doing the same thing on the other side and the app does the connecting it's like eHarmony for teachers and schools that is crazy does that sound like a cool idea or does that sound stupid yeah. I think it's a cool idea right I mean I think it sounds like a cool idea except for that we have a massive teacher shortage so it's gonna be like hey um what the school is putting out there is that we just want someone that's certified it wants to come here. Well, I'm I'm intrigued. I've already reached out to um, the CEO and developer of the company. It's called Selected, and I think he's going to join us in a future episode. But I just kind of wanted to tease that a little bit and uh, and let you know that that's coming down the pipeline. It looks like, and uh, pay attention uh, to hear more on that. That's a cool idea. So, uh, what do you know? What's going on in the teachers' lounge? Do you know what social capital is? Um, no, I mean, I could try like context clues, try to figure it out, <laughs> no. but no, I've no. heard, I've heard it, the term before, but I ne- not really until I read this article, did I really understand what it is, but social capital in a general sense means when you have a group of people that are interconnected, you know, or interlocked in some way, all working together for, to promote a common goal or whatever. So in the school setting, social capital refers to when teachers and parents and community and students are all working together to promote academic achievement or progress of a school. And so this re- there's new research out that says, hmm, what's, you know, what goes farther? A a buck, you know, money towards yeah, like education. Actual capital. or Right, yeah, or social capital. So they're basically checking into it and saying that three to five times larger effect is made from social capital networking with schools than giving money. So it's not, it's not saying money is not effective. Money oh, no, it definitely says money is effective and that, yes, you know, the results say that, sure, the schools that spend more money per student – They do have better test scores, but also looked at schools that maybe they didn't have as much money per student, but they did have a huge social capital 
those test scores soared three to five times higher. I think most people would probably agree with what you're saying just in, in concept, you know, like, sure, like teacher involvement, parent involvement, students being interested, that's going to get good results. But it's interesting to see this backed by research. From what I understand, this is a study. Yeah, a study out of Michigan schools, 5,003 students and teachers participated, 78 random public schools in Michigan. Um, and first they were asked to like complete like a survey that says, you know, I feel like parents are absolutely welcome in my school. And I see parents in my school all the time helping with projects or I have learned about different professions in my community, you know, so they have these honest responses from students, teachers, parents, you know, school officials, community members, and that's how they got their social capital rating based on, yeah, they have a high social capital or they have a low social capital. And then they basically, to measure achievement, they use their fourth grade math and reading tests, and that's how they compare that data based on money spent per student social capital rating for that school, and then the achievement for that school. So so I guess the million-dollar question is, how do you, if you're a state legislator, inject social capital into a failing district? Is that doable? Yes, I think it can be. There can be certain things that are required or certain kickbacks that are given, but they basically say, hey, when you have an area that doesn't have as much money to spend per student— and there's and the well is dry. There is no more money to go into those schools to pump into those schools. Then the best resource you have is the community to wrap its arms around that school, but also for the teachers within the school because social capital also it the the big one of the big things they say in the article is trust. It's based on trust, and that's also with students trusting their teachers, trusting that their teachers have their best interests at heart and that their teachers are there for them and are giving them a better opportunity for tomorrow. And if you have a school that has all the money in the world, but the teachers don't have the trust of their students, then then you don't have any social capital at all and you're not going to have any growth. And if you don't have strong mentor programs, you know, role models in the community that are in the schools, that are being invited to the schools, then, then no, you know, uh, of course, kids don't see what could be the benefit of having a high school diploma and continuing their education. And um, so, and then another thing that I thought was huge was one of the main components of social capital in schools is teachers that work collaboratively on student success. Like if you have a school where everybody's kind of on their own in isolation and they teach what they teach and they teach that grade and they don't really work with anything across grades or with other teachers that teach the same subjects, then they have a very low social capital score and it shows on achievement that whenever they work together for achievement, every everyone benefits, teachers and the students. You know who I think of when you talk about this social capital is, um, I don't know if you caught the episode interview, we had an episode 54 with Hamish Brewer out of Virginia. It was the um, Australian guy who was the principal with the tattoos. Yes. And I follow him on Instagram. He's great. And, <laughs> and his whole his whole theory seems to be right in line with this about like getting the whole entire community to turn around a school. And he's on his 
second school and trying to turn it around and seems to be having a lot of success, but he's just full of energy. If anybody wants to get motivated about education and when you think you're down and you don't have the resources you need, go listen to episode 54 of the Class Dismissed podcast. It's a shameless plug, I know, but it's really because of Hamish and what he's doing um, over there in Virginia in some struggling school districts. It, It seems right in line with what you're saying. And you won't be bored. He is so entertaining to listen to. You feel your heart racing because he gets you excited. Family, we, we, I have the saying, I, um, we enroll families. We don't enroll students. And when you start having this different thought process about your community and things you're doing, leaving a legacy, we put to work. Our work became a legacy. We defined our work and our inspiration for changing communities and changing outcomes of school. And we wanted to leave a legacy of greatness and we wanted to be relentless. And then it started becoming what was happening on our walls. Like, you know, people like, oh, you've got these cool murals and that. Yeah, but that's not what it's about. It's not about the mural. It's about what it means. Your school is the expectation you set for it. Your school is the expectation. It becomes the expectation of the things, the vocabulary, the language, the visuals, the things kids get to see each and every day. That becomes the expectation of your school. All right, changing gears, I have a little bit of a, I guess you can call it a legal question for you. Um, As a teacher, does anyone give you any instruction on showing Netflix videos or just using a Netflix account in your classroom? Do you get any warning about that or anything? I mean, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but no. I mean, I know as far as just, oh, what is it called? I can't remember what. Anyway, I know that I'm not supposed to show certain things, but I know that we have like this certain um, where we log on to the Internet and it's just a secure teacher Internet portal, I guess. Yeah. Um, And it allows us to bypass certain websites that it that students cannot get on when they're on the student let, let's, internet. Let's put aside like what the school wants you to see. Do you think you have a right to show, to log onto your Netflix account and show your class a movie on the last day of school? Well, I mean, I I know the answer to this and it's no because that's an audience too great for what my subscription probably yeah, allows. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I've been... Honestly, I'm going to sound really foolish here. I I don't play movies at school, clearly. What we do on the last day of school is, you know, we have an art party. Like, we throw paint at, you know, large pieces of paper and stuff like that. But um, but I w- it would never occur to me to pull up Netflix in my classroom. But I guess because you're saying this, this must be a problem yeah, well, <laughs> that I don't, I don't know about. I don't know so much as a problem, but I'm sure it happens, you know, and... And the, there are rules, like if you log in with your individual user agreement of Netflix, you're right. You cannot show that to a public venue. That could uh, be a contract violation that you have with Netflix. And I guess in a way, you're putting yourself and your school in jeopardy yeah. by doing that. However, Netflix does permit the showing of some documentaries in class. And I'll put a link like that explains all this stuff um, on the podcast notes. Um, but also you might be able to ask your media specialist about whether or not your school district has some sort of public performance rights or license that they can use. Uh, Apparently those exist that they can grab and you can log in with their account and that is allowed 
to happen in that regard. Um, because mm. because Netflix, I think, is okay with showing it for teaching purposes. There's there's kind of like this this whole thing of like videos that you can show. Let's put Netflix aside. If it's face to face teaching, um, if it's viewed in a classroom or some place of instruction, the copy was lawfully made. It's not like some bootleg copy or something. Um, you're not really violating any copyright rules and as long as it's like part of regular instruction but it's really kind of gets murky on that that last day of school or it's like fun time where yep. someone's like hey or it's christmas let's say we're coming up on christmas, christmas right Polar express yeah, exactly a drama party with hot cocoa yep and you and you log in with the netflix really has nothing to do with instruction you're just doing it to give the kids and, and the teachers a break you got to be careful you may actually be in violation of uh, some sort of copyright laws there and everyone can roll the dice if they want but you know, we just want to make people informed here. And uh, this was an article I actually found on edsurge.com. And again, I'll link to it in the uh, show notes and kind of let people uh, take a look at that. It's really interesting that you're bringing this up because a, a young uh, a high school girl that I know well, she was talking to me about how she's taking psychology. She's she's an 11th grader. And she was telling me these three movies that they are perusing in psychology class. My, my favorite what about bob for psychology does anyone remember that one i don't Murray? remember i don't remember the other movies that she stated because she stated this first movie and it blew my mind that well what? two of them. i remember two i don't okay, remember you, the third what was it so one of them was seven Ooh, and I yeah, was like, um, I'm sorry, yeah. you're watching that in school? Yeah. So that that was one. And so mind blown. Num- the second movie I have not seen, it's called Split. And uh, apparently like it's Split a- Personality, I guess. Yeah. Yes. And I think that he got like an award for his acting in this movie. But um, he pl- it, it's a scary movie, though. Basically, he kidnaps three girls and puts them in his basement. And then he has like all these multiple personalities. So they're watching that. And then I have no idea what she said for the third movie. It, maybe it was What About Bob? And I was be. just so shocked. <laughs> it should be. That's about the only one that's semi-appropriate of I the know. list of three there, if, if What About Bob was one of them. I, and I, So she said they had to have a form signed or whatever to be able to. But I to. guess, are they just pulling it up on Netflix? Or did they bootleg a copy? I like, don't know. You know? I'm going to I'm gonna ask her. I will ask her. I mean, you know. And I will let you know. And, and I'm sure there's people out there who are like, we're just going to do this. And hopefully no one turns us in. We don't get caught or whatever. And if you want to roll the dice, yeah. more power to you. But It's kind of like that teachers pay teachers thing that we were talking about. How, you know, they make one, you know, you, you download one copy of a test yeah. and you pay for it on teachers pay teachers but then when you share that across your entire district that's not that's not okay right <laughs> well hey are you ready for the uh, bright idea yeah we have a teacher that is doing something pretty cool he is using code in his digital humanities class in high school to analyze things like rap lyrics news coverage, speeches, books, but essentially he's taking this code, if I'm understanding this right, I'll let him explain it better, but he's um, teaching the kids how to use code to analyze like large amounts of text. Wow. So stay tuned. Our guest in today's Bright Ideas segment is teaching his students how to analyze text with computers. Peter Nilsson is an English teacher, but he also has submerged himself into the digital humanities, and he's now showing his class how they can use code to find trends or changes in news coverage, speeches, and even rap lyrics. 
Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. It's good to be here. First, let's uh, make sure I myself, as well as our listening audience, understands exactly what you're doing here, because it is a little bit complex, but I'm going to try to explain it how I interpret it, and then you tell me where I'm wrong. All right. From, from what I understand, I think you are basically taking large amounts of text. So let's say if it's news coverage, and you're analyzing that, or the student is analyzing that, and seeing if there's some sort of change maybe in the way things are covered. Would that be an example? Sure. Yeah, th that's a specific case. The The general idea is that we can read text in multiple ways, and we're used to reading text to close reading text, to looking at the individual meaning of individual words and trying to pull meaning from that as we build words together into sentences. But what we've also come to understand is that with more powerful computational tools, we can start to look at texts in the aggregate and start to say across these thousands or tens of thousands of words or more, what can we, what meaning can we draw? How can we look at this text at large and use more sophisticated tools to, to read the text from a distance? Where did you even come up with this idea? There are two or three stages to coming up with this idea. The first was back when I was in college in the late 90s. These were the early days of the internet. And I remember being assigned an essay by one of my English professors uh, about Heart of Darkness. And I thought to myself, I wonder if I can find every instance of the of the word darkness within the text. And I had read it very carefully, of course, and I could remember several key moments. But I felt like if I could do some kind of a find-in text, then I would be able to find it more easily. Sure enough, in these early days of the internet, some of these public domain texts were online. And I was able to find Heart of Darkness online in the web browser, the full text at the University of Virginia, like e-library, I forget exactly what it was called. Um, and so I, I opened up the full text of Heart of Darkness in a web browser. I typed command F to do find and page and I put in the word darkness and right in front of me there one at a time I could find every instance of the word darkness. And that's a great example of how a digital tool can be used to facilitate or enhance our analysis of a text. Of course, as a close reader, which is the skill of reading literature, I could then look at every instance of the word darkness and find and draw meaning from it. That was that's one example of how this uh, how this idea started. A second example is or came from when I uh, was leading a, a, a group, a committee at, at my school that was about the varying degrees of preparation of students at our school. And we wanted to, to see if we could better understand how we could support students coming from all different skill levels and backgrounds. And there were like content skills and there were content gaps rather that we saw uh, between st students as they arrived. There were skills gaps between students as they arrived. But we had a hypothesis that there were character gaps and uh, how students arrive. Or rather, we had a hypothesis that certain character traits that different students had would help them close the gaps that they had in their preparation for high school as they, as they came to our school. And that's great to have that hypothesis that certain character traits will help students succeed more, but it doesn't help us if we don't know what those character traits are. Mm -hmm. What's challenging about character is that it's qualitative, not quantitative. Right. We don't have assessments for it. And so we wanted to understand how we could assess what character traits, how it could qualitatively assess what character traits uh, characterize those students who excel and what character traits we encourage in students who struggle. Um, and we realized that teachers at our school write 150 to 200 word comments about each of our students at the end of every class, at the end of every term. Mm -hmm. So at the end of every is term. That, is that basically so they can pass on to the next teacher? 
Yeah, or reflect back to the parents or provide some kind of feedback to the student and the parents and the future teachers about the student's progress. And if we have 650 students at our school and they're each receiving 150 to 200 words of feedback about uh, from each of their teachers for all five of their classes in the fall, three terms per year, 15 classes, we realize that our teachers here at Deerfield write 1.6 to 1.7 million words per year about our students. Wow. And we realize we have this in a database going back eight years, 14 million words our teachers write about students um, or had written about students in our databases. And so we said, well, this is an extraordinary qualitative description of student performance. And so if we can take the comments that we write encouraging our, our bottom 16% of students, the students who struggle, we can find out what are the character traits, uh, what are the words, what are the character traits that appear to a statistically significant degree more often in those comments of students who struggle. And that will help us understand the character traits that we encourage in students who struggle. And if we think about the students who excel and we section off those uh, those the comments for those students, mm -hmm. then we can say, what are the character traits we reflect in students who excel? So, so I'm um, curious, what was the conclusion? <laughs> that's always the exciting part, right? right? So yeah, so what we found actually was that, and but before I tell you what it is, you know, to keep it a little bit further, mm -hmm. this is an example of a, of a text mining analysis of a big data analysis. You have this massive body of text, 14 million words. You can't read all those words, but maybe we can use computational tools to sift out the meaning or to sift out relevant pieces of information that we can then explore further. And so what we found through this approach was that the character traits that teachers referred to or described to a statistically significantly greater degree in the students who struggle uh, were character traits that had to do with first consistency are students performing in a consistent manner? Hmm. Second, the idea of sufficiency. Are students doing more than just the bare minimum or are they doing the bare minimum? We see the word appear, we see the word more appear more often in the comments of students who struggle than in those, uh, than in those who excel. Uh, and so, so consistency is one area, one character trait. Sufficiency, uh, a minimum level of productivity is another area. And then the third one, uh, was focus. We see words having to do with attention and focus appear more often in those, in the comments of students who struggle. So we began to think about those three different traits, uh, foundational consistency, sufficiency, and focus as foundational to the way we want, uh, as foundational to success mm -hmm, right. at, at Deerfield. And then the comments, the, the, the rather the character traits that we saw in students who excel or that our teachers reflected in their comments about students who excel are familiar terms. We see a more frequent use of the word curiosity in students who excel. We see a more frequent use of the word creativity uh, in the comments, rather, of students who, who excel. Uh, and also we see words having to do with grit, words like discipline, words like dedication. Uh, those kinds of words appear uh, in, in more often in the comments of students who excel. And so that was really fascinating. The foundational character traits we began to see were consistency, sufficiency, and focus. And the, the character traits that led to excellence we began to see as curiosity, creativity, and grit. That is extremely fascinating. And I imagine that the data set that you looked at, I mean, is useful to, to any school in the country, really. I imagine it's pretty consistent just about wherever you look with what your conclusion was. You were talking about using Control-F at the beginning. This was a much more complex system, I imagine, to be able to pull all this data, right? Yeah. So the way that I think about that is what we were doing with Heart of Darkness was, not, was, was very easy, but not very powerful. 
And what we did with this data set was really powerful, but not very easy. Um, and so what led to the creation of this class was about three years ago, it was 2015 or 2016, uh, I was attending South by Southwest EDU and I was at a talk uh, listening to Stephen Wolfram present about uh, Wolfram language, which is the programming language that undergirds Mathematica, right. uh, which is math software for, for math classes, and uh, Wolfram Alpha, which is the kind of natural language processing slash structured knowledge engine that undergirds Siri and a number of other tools. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I was listening to his talk, and in his talk there, he was modeling some of the new functionality that Wolfram language uh, could do. Uh, and he was showing uh, ways in which Wolfram language had been uh, enhanced or expanded to include commands for taking computational approaches to text and for doing word counts, for doing word clouds, for um, parsing sentences, for assessing the, the, the mood uh, of sentences, for deconstructing words into their phonetic forms, into their uh, relative meanings. Uh, it, it, it was really fascinating. And what was critical about watching that was it was very clear as I was watching it that it was not only powerful, but also easy. It was taking uh, the computational power of Mathematica and applying it to structured knowledge and to text in a language that was operating in what you would say in the in the programming space as at a very high level which means the commands were very simple if you want to make a word cloud you type in word cloud mm -hmm. and then the name of the text you want to make a word cloud out of if you want to count all the words in a in a body of text you do uh, word count if you want to count how many times every single word appears in the text do word counts. You know, they're very simple, one word, intuitive sounding commands. The syntax was minimal. And I listened to that and I saw that and I said, wow, that's easy. That's something that 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 high school students could do. Um, and so I went and spoke with Stephen Wolfram after the talk. And that's the great thing about going to conferences where people like Stephen Wolfram are presenting is you can just walk right up to them afterwards right, and, right. and ask them questions. Uh, and I interesting, interestingly, I told him about the the text mining analysis about character traits that I just mentioned. Right. And he was fascinated by that. And we continued that conversation down at the expo at South by Southwest. And um, I started to learn to use Wolfram language just, you know, at the conference. Um, and that was the beginning of it. Uh, I brought that knowledge back to my school and I, and I said, this would make a great course. So can you describe some of the projects that the students were working on specifically or something that stands out in your mind? Sure, yeah. There were five projects over the course of the term. And the first was a three-day project that uses, uses a tool that's online called Google Ngram Viewer, which shows you the popularity of individual words over time. It, it shows you a graph of word usage. And that's a really great, easy-to-use tool that helps kids begin to think quantitatively or computationally about words. You can see, for example, what the um, predominance is or what the what the frequency of, of use of the word frisbee is versus lacrosse or soccer you can see um, you can search different names and see how those names have ebbed and flowed over time and so it, it, the first project began just encouraging students to ask questions to explore the tool to play with it a little bit to see what kind of information they could get out of it and then to start to be a little more uh, intentional about 
testing words against each other and then using some of the some of the more refined tools that they can use uh, with Google Ngram Viewer. Uh, so it started with that. And that was just an introduction to thinking computationally uh, about text. Then we introduced them to Wolfram language, uh, and we we introduced them to Wolfram language by inviting them to analyze their own writing using some quantitative uh, quantitative approaches. Mm-hmm. We we had them uh, gather up all the writing that they had produced in high school that they still had saved uh, and put it into one document. And then we modeled for them some of the basic analyses that you can do in Wolfram language and had them essentially copy the code that we were doing, but using it on a different data set. And our approach in doing this was to use something like an immersion approach to computer science language or to programming languages, as opposed to a, a more theoretical approach to computer science languages. Um, but so, so what we did is we had them do some, some analyses of their own writing, and we had them compare their own writing to works of great literature by looking at sentence length, by looking at the, the breadth of their vocabulary, by looking at um, the length of syllables in the words that they used, by looking at uh, the length of, lengths of paragraphs. And it was fascinating because, the, first of all, it's extraordinarily relevant. They're excited by it because they see measures of their own writing. Right. Second of all, they compare their own writing to writing of great writers. And it's not what you would think. It's not like you would think that Shakespeare's sentences are all very long. It turns out they're not. Uh, and students are surprised sometimes that their sentences are longer than great writers. And they recognize that it isn't all about length. It's also about how you use the individual words. It's also about the vocabulary that, that they use. And comparing, they start to see what whether they have long paragraphs or short paragraphs, and which writers have long paragraphs and short paragraphs. And of course, they're continuing to share their work in, in small presentations to each other. And then after the, those foundational projects, we really open it up in the final two projects, which are two, two to three week long independent projects, where after we have introduced them to this way of thinking, given them a little bit of familiarity with the tool, they then can start to ask questions about topics that are of interest to them. And this gets back to your original question about how kids use it. This is when kids start to say, well, I'm interested in rap music. And we say, okay, well, what do you want to know about rap music? How might you use this? And they might say, well, I want to know who the best rap artist is. Hmm. And we can say, well, that's a great question, but how can we assess that with, uh, w- uh, from a computational approach? And they might say, oh, well, what about rhyme? Can we look at how they use rhyme? And we can say yes, actually, because in the programming language, which again is powerful and easy, you can break down, you can transfer, translate each word into the phonemes of the word. And once you can translate into the phonemes, which is the the individual sounds of each word, of each uh, of each sound or syllable in the word, then you can start to look quantitatively at the phonemes. Does does this particular vowel sound appear in close proximity to itself multiple times? Does this particular consonant appear with greater frequency? The frequency of the phoneme represents rhyme. The density of the appearances of the phoneme represents like internal rhyme or close rhyme. 
Um, so from that, the students started to say, well, then maybe we can assess who the best rap artist is by who has the greatest use or the densest use of rhyme in their verses. The student then compared Kendrick Lamar to Eminem to one other artist whose name I forget. I mean, I think it was Common, maybe, I don't remember, mm -hmm. um, to see who had the greatest use of internal rhyme. Another student said, well, I want to look at rap, but I want to look at rap over time and see how it's changed over time. So this student found when Billboard first started putting rap and hip hop on the on the top on the billboard charts and found that that was 1989 and then found every rap song that was listed in the top 10 on these charts um uh, on the hip-hop charts and then found uh, online the lyrics for every single song every single rap song that was in the top 10 billboard chart for rapper hip-hop and then collected all those songs into individual files and then started to say, well, let's chunk these into 1990 to 1995, 95 to 2000, 2000 to 2005, right. 2005 to 2010. And started to say, yeah, what are the most frequent words that appear in each half decade? What are the... Uh, how what are what are the relative lengths of the songs? When are rap artists more ver verbose, and when are they when are they more spare? When is the writing more laden with expletives, and when is it cleaner? Um, and and that was really interesting. Um, other students, instead of looking at um, <clears throat> music, other students looked at things like representations of sports teams in their home news hometown newspaper versus in their rival city newspaper mm -hmm. so they would look at after the patriots won the super bowl they'd pull the articles from the local boston and new england newspapers and they'd pull the articles from the new york newspapers and or from you know newspapers in california and say what are the words that appear most frequently in these, how much do they talk about the star players? How much do they talk about the defense or the offense? Uh, and compared that across those. And uh, other students looked at um, one student, a pair of students looked at Harvey Weinstein as represented in in the New York Times and pulled every article that from the Times topic Harvey Weinstein in the New York Times, which was many many articles, and then looked at how words appeared after the Me Too movement arrived and before the Me Too movement arrived to see how coverage. Uh, of Harvey Weinstein changed during that time. So yeah. when, when when these students are are diving into things that they like, like rap or sports or or whatever it may be, this mm -hmm. must blow their mind, what they're doing. Like, what's the reaction you get from them? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes. <clears throat> uh, it, it's great. Um, part of the way that we designed the class was so that they would be able to pursue these topics of interest and enable them to see these topics of interest from a new perspective. And it does kind of blow their minds a little bit. They, they start to realize that they're creating knowledge. And especially in such a young field, the field is called the digital humanities and the digital humanities is just establishing itself. It's been around in various forms actually for hundreds of years, but as a really powerful contemporary computational tool, that's, I'd put it in the decades. Um, and since it's such a young field, they realize that they're creating knowledge and uh, that is cutting edge, that we're seeing this in the 2016 elections. There are articles in the New York Times and in the Wall Street Journal about word frequency usage in the speeches of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Uh, and they realize that they're doing the same thing on topics of, of their own interest. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, th that was a, a big part of how we wanted to design the class. 
And some of it is not, not, not only contemporary. Some students are saying, I want to look at inauguration speeches uh, across the history of the United States and farewell addresses from presidents across the history of the United States and see what words appear consistently across all of them and then what words are unique to individual presidents. And, and distant reading is really the term that you, that you put on all of this, right? Yeah, distant reading is a term that we we take from a from a book of of literary criticism called Distant Reading, by a, by a former Stanford professor named Franco Moretti, who was not the first person to think in this way, but he kind of crystallized or put a name on uh, an approach to text that had been emerging uh, over over a period of time. Essentially, what what Moretti uh, argues is that when we study literature, when we study the novel, for example. We look at maybe the you know two hundred novels are considered the great novels and are the ones that people study in their English classes. Um, but if we want to talk about the novel, we need to recognize that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of novels that have been written. And by looking at only a very small subset of what those novels are, we're really only looking at the exception and not the rule. And if we are to really understand the novel, we need to be inclusive of all those hundreds of thousands or millions of novels that have been written. Only in doing that can we really understand, he would say, more rationally, what the novel is and how the novel works. Of course, that's a very difficult, it's basically an impossible thing to do because it's too much to read in a lifetime. But if we start to think about these distant approaches where we're looking at words and we're looking at texts from a distance through graphs, through maps, through knowledge trees, through computational or quantitative approaches, then we can start to derive different kinds of meaning, which is not the same as the meaning that we derive from reading closely. The way I think about that is that if we really want to understand the human experience we want to look closely at a novel. We want to understand the characters or, or closely at history. If we want to really understand the human experience, we want to look closely at novels or closely at history to understand who's operating in a situation. What decisions are they making? What are the factors influencing them? What does it feel to be in that moment? That's how we can really understand the human experience. But if we want to look at the trends or patterns uh, that start to emerge across different experiences, then we want to think about looking from a distant approach. Then we want to start seeing, looking at large masses of texts uh, and aggregating knowledge across them. In, in a real life sense, I mean, in my mind, I can already think of some jobs that this skill set could be useful in, and one's media or, or constitutional law, you could analyze Supreme Court opinions and, and look for trends there, or maybe frequency of words used. I mean, what, what comes to mind for you? How, where can you see this skill set applied in the real world? It's a good question. Our goal in the course is to help students understand how computation can inform their understanding of text and how they can use this to draw meaning from large bodies of text. Um, that is applicable across almost any discipline. And we, we live in a world that generates lots of data. Some of it is quantitative. That's what we generally think of when we think of data. We think of numbers, but that generates lots of qualitative data as well through the prose that is written, the words that are written uh, in any uh, in any environment. And our goal is really to say, in this world filled with data like this, filled with words, so filled with words, here is a tool that you can use 
to apply to almost any any field. For example, we're in an English class. We're looking at literature. This is you know the, the class that you probably think of as being the farthest removed from data. And yet still you can use this tool in this world. As our world grows more digital, here is um, here is something that that you can use to to really explore and experiment. The content that we're talking about, using software, uh, applying that computational approach to text, that is really just a medium to get to some really universal skills. Question formulation, problem decomposition, interpretation of evidence and argumentation, and then being metacognitive, reflecting on their work. And those skills are really serving the purpose of our ultimate goals, which are to develop three character traits in students. We want them to practice play, like unstructured play for learning. We want to give them a powerful tool and say, play with it. See what you come up with. We also want them to practice, once they've done that, we want them to practice disciplined experimentation. Can they take something that they've played with, that they've found something compelling with, and then can they be disciplined about how they use that tool? And then we want them to practice persistence, which is that trait, consistency, um, that, that carries through. If somebody's listening to this and they say, you know what, I want to try this in my class, maybe not a whole course, but you know, do an example of this, where should they start? If somebody's interested in this and experimenting with it, I would encourage them to go to our website, distantreading.org. There they can find uh, a discussion of the projects that we shared in our class, uh, a, a more thorough description of the character, skill, and content objectives of our course. So you can also find there some highlights from student work. And if the description of the code and the, and the programming still sounds a little intimidating. There's uh, even a video there of some live coding that I did uh, at a conference presentation so a teacher could see exactly what it looks like to see if, if it, uh, to see if it's intimidating or not. I don't think it will be once you see it, uh, once it's demystified. Any other places you like to uh, have people keep up with you? Uh, are you on social media or anything like that? Oh, great. Uh, yes. Um, I am on social media and Twitter at P. Nelson, but the place that I would really point people to is educatorsnotebook.com. That's uh, a newsletter that I put out every week that collects education and learning related news from around the web. And I'm always posting updates about digital humanities stuff there, but I'm also posting news articles that I encounter about character, about curriculum, about STEM, about humanities, about uh, cognitive science, about adolescence, uh, you name it. Uh, just try to keep up with news that's there, and, and I'll, I'll be sharing information there as well. Peter, you really are doing some next-level work with the students here, um, and I just have to applaud you for that. So uh, keep up the great work. Thanks so much. Well, Peter, are you ready for our pop quiz? <laughs> as ready as I'll ever be, I guess. All right. Uh, first question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? It should be communication, okay. which I would call language arts. All right. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? I don't believe we're intentional, in most cases, about teaching empathy, which is essential in an increasingly isolated and fractured world. What does every child deserve? Opportunity. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Too many stakeholders asking for too many different things. What's the best gift to give an educator? Time. Which teacher changed your life? I will choose two or three teachers who told me that my who told me in different ways that my work wasn't 
acceptable and that I needed to do better in order to do well in their classes. And and you took that in a good way, I guess? Yeah, I took that as well. <laughs> sometimes sometimes I took that as a good way, in a good way. Sometimes I took that in a good way in that uh well l- 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 <laughs> I, you took it as a challenge, I should say. Yes, I took it as a challenge. In most cases, actually, now that I think back about that, I was frustrated in the class, and I was going to prove it to myself or to the teacher that what I wanted to do or that what I believed in could be excellent. Uh, and uh, <laughs> sometimes it was kind of thumbing it to the teacher. Uh, and I can't say that I that I encourage that in other people, but I will say that it was a teacher telling me, you know, it was a teacher giving me a bad grade or a teacher saying that something that I believed strongly in was wrong um, that led me to dig into that and to research, understand actually what good hard work meant. Um, and when the teacher then rewarded that good hard work, I realized, oh, that's the good hard work that the teacher was asking for all along. And last question, pen or pencil? I carry pens everywhere. I'm a, you know, I'm a teacher. I always have a pen in my pocket. All right, Peter Nilsson, again, we appreciate your time <laughs> and uh, best of luck to you with all you're doing over there at Deerfield Academy. Thanks so much, Nick. I really appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you, so if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button, and we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter to search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ward. Go and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.